know, if there is one thing that the past five years has taught us when it comes to leadership, it's that character counts. Um, whether that be observing the political scene in the United States or the fall of many evangelical leaders in the past few years, character counts. Character matters. You know, it's easy to impress people with your gifts and your talents in the short term. But over the long term, who you are rises to the surface. Um, leadership writer Stephen Covey once said, our character is basically a composite of our habits. Because they are cons uh, consistent, often unconscious patterns, they constantly, daily express our character. So our character is the sum total of our habits and ways of responding that we do automatically without even thinking. This is why it's so important to cultivate a godly character. Because no one can keep up a facade 24-7. And God is not just into sin management. He wants to actually transform our character. He wants to transform us so we display the character of Jesus. So that in our habits and our automatic responses, who we are when no one's looking, we'll respond with humility and love towards others and love towards God. You know, it's fairly easy as a leader when you're in public to present like you are a godly person. It's pretty easy this morning for me as I speak to you to put on a godly persona. But my public face is not where my character is seen. It's seen at private and at home when no one is looking. And all of the falls that we've seen recently, either in Christendom or in our own government that we've seen over the last couple of weeks, are ultimately failures of character. It's because there was this distance between who the person was publicly and who the person was privately. They had extraordinary gifts who impressed and impressed people, but they were not people of integrity, people of character. Now, if you're joining us this morning, we began a new series last week called Becoming a Person God Can Use, a series in the book of Exodus. So if you haven't opened up your Bibles, please open them up to Exodus chapter 2 this morning. And last week, we looked at our very first lesson in becoming a person who God can use. And I gave you the lesson straight up front last week, and it was this, that although life in Egypt is hard and difficult, those who make a difference, or those whom God uses, are those who still choose to honor and obey God above all else. And last week, we saw two Hebrew midwives, these two unlikely characters, Shifra and Pura. They stood up against Pharaoh, the most powerful man of the time. And the reason that they stood against Pharaoh, we saw last week, was because they feared the Lord. And I challenged us all last week to cultivate the fear of the Lord in our lives. I wonder how you did this week in cultivating that awe and reverence for God in your private life. Well, last week we ended on a cliffhanger at the end of chapter 1. Since Pharaoh could not get Shifra and Purah to do his dirty work, he issued a command to his people saying that every son that is born to the Hebrews be cast into the Nile. Now you can imagine the fear and the panic that this would have struck into the hearts of every pregnant couple in Israel. But even in this darkness, God had a plan. He was at work. He was shaping the character of his deliverer. But character is not formed in a moment, it's forged over a lifetime. And before God could use Moses to deliver Israel, he had to forge his character. And there are two things that have shaped your character as you are sitting here this morning more than anything else. 
two things that have shaped you into the person that you are. And that is the family you grew up in and the failures you have experienced. Now, as I said last week, each and every week, I'm going to give you the lesson straight up front. You can write it down. You could even take a photo of it on your phone if you want to so that you can learn this lesson. But here's the lesson, our second lesson for becoming a person whom God can use. And excuse the verbiage, but I couldn't get it down this week, so it's a fairly long sentence. So if you want to become a person whom God can use, then you must become a person of character. Because while you can impress people with your gifts, you can only impact people over the long haul if you're a person of character. And to become a person of character, you become a person of character by coming to grips with what your family growing up deposited in you, the good and the bad. And you must learn from your failures. So if you want to become a person whom God can use, then you must become a person of character. And to become a person of character, you must deal with your baggage from the past and you must learn the lessons that God is trying to teach you through failure. You know, I've found that many people live unreflected lives. They never really have reflected or taken moments to reflect, what is it that my parents deposited into me? And how has that shaped me and how is that affecting me as the person I am today? And they've never really taken the time to think about their failures. What are my failures? What is God trying to teach me through my failures? And so they end up repeating the same mistakes over and over again and doing the same things over and over again. Well, as we begin chapter 2 of Exodus, we read about Moses' family. And Moses really had two families. He had his birth family and then he had his adopted family. And both of these were used by God to shape him into the person that he would become. First, there was his birth family. Now, although it doesn't say it in the text, in in Exodus chapter 2, we later learn in the book of Exodus that the name of Moses' parents were Amram and Jochebed. They were from the tribe of Levi, the tribe that would later become the, the priestly tribe in Israel. And Moses was not the firstborn son in his family. He had two older siblings. He had his older brother Aaron, and he also had an older sister Miriam. And both of these would be key players in the nation of Israel and key supports to Moses and his leadership. Now, the key thing about Moses' birth family was that they were people of great faith. We know this for a couple of reasons. Down in verse 2, we read that when Moses' mother conceived and bore a son, she saw that he was a fine child, and so she hid him for three months. The book of Hebrews in chapter 11 and verse 23 gives us a commentary on Exodus 2. And the writer of Hebrews says that it was by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So Moses' parents were like Shifra and Puel. They were people of faith, people who feared the Lord. And because they feared the Lord, they were not afraid of the king's edict. And so they hid their child for three months. Now, when it says here in Exodus 2 that he was a fine child, or as it says over in Hebrews that he was beautiful, I think it means more than he was just a cute baby. You know, every parent growing up, when they, especially when you have your first child, you think you, that your child is the most gorgeous child ever born, don't you? And you show, you know, people show you their photos of their child. This is the most gorgeous child ever born on the face of planet Earth. Now, statistically speaking, that can't be true, can it, you know? Statistically, that has to be the most ugliest and the most beautiful. And, of course, my kids were the most beautiful children on planet Earth, of course. But while it says that he was cute, I don't think 
that he was just a cute baby or a beautiful baby. I think what the writers are getting at here is by calling Moses beautiful, is I think what they were saying is that when Moses' parents looked down at this child, being people of faith and having a deep fear of the Lord, they recognized that God had a special purpose for this child. The reason I say this is because Stephen in Acts 7, in his commentary on the life of Moses, says that Moses was beautiful as a child in the sight of God. Aram and Jacobet, as they looked down at Moses, they could see that God had a special plan for his life, and that's why they saved him. And so being people of faith, they, and not fearing the king's edict, they hid him for three months. But when they could hide him no longer, they made a basket made of bulrushes, dabbed it with bitumen and pitch, and placed him among the reeds by the riverbank. Some of you mothers, can you imagine doing that with your three-month-old? Now, they did send the, the, uh, Moses' older sister Miriam to watch over him. But such was the faith of Moses' parents that they were willing to entrust this three-month-old baby into the hands of God. Remember, among the bulrushes, there would have been crocodiles. But also, I think we see the faith of Moses' birth family expressed in the fact that even though they had a short amount of time with Moses, they left a huge mark on his life. Now, you know the rest of the story. Moses, uh, Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the river to bathe, and she sees this basket among the reeds, and she sends her servant girl to go and get it. When they open it, it's a Hebrew boy crying, and Pharaoh's daughter takes pity on the child. Moses' sister, who's been watching from a distance, approaches Pharaoh's daughter and asks whether she would like a Hebrew woman to nurse the child, to feed the child. And Pharaoh's daughter says, go, take this child and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So Jochebed, Moses' mother, got this, get this, she got to nurse him, and she even got paid for it. But when he grew older, when Moses grew older, she brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him, and gave him the name Moses. Now, we don't know the exact age that was. It may have been somewhere between the ages of three to seven, we don't know exactly where that was, but they had this short time to invest in Moses. But even though they had a short time to invest in Moses, they left a huge mark on him. You see, he never forgot who he really was. Even though he was raised in Pharaoh's household, even though he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, he never forgot that he was an Israelite of the tribe of Levi. Now, I know the movies, The Prince of Egypt, and the latest movie on the life of Moses, Gods and Kings, starring Christian Bale, present something different. They present Moses as having forgotten who he was. But that's not what the writer of Hebrews says. He says that it was by faith Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. You know, as Aristotle once said, you give me a child till, I am, till he is seven, and I will give you the man. So Moses' birth family were used to forge this foundation of faith in him, a foundation which would later become the structure of his whole relationship with God. But as I said, not only was his birth family used by God, but also his adopted family, Pharaoh's own household. As Stephen tells us in Acts 7, Moses was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and she brought him up as her own son. And he says that he was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in words and deeds. You know, Moses would have to lead the nation of Israel and what better preparation for leadership 
than to be trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, the greatest world power of the time. Further, when God did call Moses and instructed him to go and speak to Pharaoh, he would have already had a relationship with him as they'd grown up in the same household together. And also, unlike the rest of the Israelites, whose wills and spirits had been broken by harsh slavery, Moses didn't grow up in that environment. So unlike the rest of his Israelite peers, who had grown up in Egypt under harsh slavery, Moses would have been open to God's vision of delivering over one million people out of Egypt, something that his peers, I don't think, could possibly imagine. So God sovereignly used both Moses' birth family and his adopted family to shape his character into the person that he wanted him to become. Now you might say, well, Pastor Timon, that's good for Moses. He had a wonderful family, a family that loved God and instilled in him love for God. But Pastor Timon, my family was not like that. They were not people of faith. In fact, I'm still dealing with the scars and wounds that have come into my life because of my family. And I was really, really thinking about that as I was preparing this message when we were praying earlier today for you. I thought, man, there are going to be people who come in today and come from all different backgrounds. Maybe some really terrible things have happened to you. But I find the words of Paul in Acts 17, verses 26 to 27, very instructive. Paul is speaking to Greek philosophers in Athens, and he says that, listen to this, God has made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. There's only one human family. We all are part of the same family. We all come from Adam and Eve. And notice what he says, having determined allotted periods. So he's determined when you live and the boundaries of their dwelling place, where you live. And notice it's for a purpose, Paul says, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying that it's not random that you are here right now living in the 21st century. And it's not random, the family that you were placed in. God had a larger purpose. And his purpose is that you would feel your way towards him and find him. So even though you didn't grow up in a Christian family, and there might have been a lot of brokenness, this was not a mistake on God's part. Even though he didn't cause the brokenness, he still mysteriously and sovereignly had placed you there because he knew exactly what you would need so that you would seek him. And that you would find him. And do you know, some of the people who have been powerfully used by God have come from very broken situations. But as they brought that brokenness to the cross and been healed by Jesus, they've been instruments of his healing in the lives of others. You know, I was reading a couple of weeks ago a story of a lady named Lisa. And growing up, she didn't have a good relationship with her father. Lisa was an active teen and was never overtly obsessed with her weight. Uh, she swam all year round on two swim teams in high school. And this allowed her to practically eat whatever and whenever she wanted. Then there was an injury that caused her to sit out of swimming during year 11. So while her activity decreased, she continued to consume the same amount of food as she'd done in her training. Well, one day when she walked in from school, her father called her over. He looked Lisa up and down in a disapproving manner 
and he instructed her to turn around. Once his assessment was over, he pronounced, boy, those jeans are tight. How much do you weigh? She told him her weight. He counted, there's no way that you weigh that. Go weigh yourself. Feeling an overwhelming sense of shame and confusion, she proceeded to the family scale in her parents' bathroom. Lisa was surprised to discover that she weighed much more than what she thought. She reported back to her dad how much she weighed. Her father let her know in no uncertain terms how he felt that it was far too much for her to weigh. It was not attractive and guys were not going to ask her out at this weight. When the lecture was over, Lisa went back to her bedroom. She undressed and took a really good look at her body and for the first time, she hated it. From that moment forward, her weight became a driving force in her life. She became extremely self-conscious of her size and was consumed with thoughts about her weight. She exercised and she cut back on food portions and her efforts began to pay off. Boys began to notice her and she loved the attention. So eventually a parallel developed in her mind. If I am thin, I am powerful and worthy of love and attention. If I am fat, I am not. This mindset put her into a downward spiral until she gradually deteriorated to a state of anorexia and bulimia. From that point on, Lisa had a love-hate relationship with food. She loved to eat, but she hated being fat. And so she turned to laxatives and diuretics to purge her body. And by the first year of her university, she had become addicted to them. Eventually, she checked into a hospital because she had, hadn't had a bowel movement for over a month. All this came about because of the words that her father had spoken into her life. Now God, at the age of 23, came to Lisa, and she was saved, and she trusted in Jesus. And Lisa took her brokenness to the cross, and over a period of time, she was healed. And although what happened to Lisa was absolutely inexcusable, Lisa now helps other women with exactly the same problem. You see, as I said, some of the people who have been most powerfully used by God have been people who have come from very broken situations. But as they brought that brokenness to the cross, and yes, it's taken time, it's taken counseling, sometimes years, as they've taken it to the cross and received healing, they've then become instruments of healing in the lives of others. So I think an important question to ask ourselves this morning is what has my family deposited in me? You know, parents, you are making a small deposit in the future every day in how you parent your children. It's a serious thing to be a parent. But I do think we all need to ask, if we haven't already, that question, how have my parents and their words and actions shaped me into the person I am today? What are the positive things that I can thank God for that my parents did? You know, as I was thinking about this message yesterday, I was going for my morning walk, and I was just really, really, really overcome by thankfulness towards my mother. You know, I've often honored my dad, but I haven't often honored my mum. And my mum, she fostered my musical talents as a child. I couldn't read very well. 
I was a sort of child who was a bit dyslexic. But my mum fostered my musical talents by taking me twice a week after school to music lessons. Something that would, you know, just take hours of time because we lived on a farm. We lived about half an hour away from the city. So this was an hour-long trip. And, you know, often she would get home after dark and still have to cook dinner for the family. What amazing sacrifice. And I realized as I was walking yesterday that I've never thanked her. Never taken the time to thank her for that. And so I wrote her a thank you note that I'm going to be sending Monday to her to thank her. You know, don't, don't wait till it's too late to thank your parents for the investment that they made in your life. Don't wait till it's too late. Thank them for the investment that they made in your life. But also, obviously... What are the wounds and the baggage that you need to bring to the foot of the cross? You know, many people walk through life crippled because their past is still affecting their present. What do you need to bring to the foot of the cross? Now, obviously, this needs to be done sensitively. If there is serious abuse, then this needs to be brought to a counselor who can help you through that. But as difficult as it is, God doesn't want us to be trapped by the past. And there is sufficient resource in Christ, in the gospel, so that you don't have to be trapped by your past, but you can deal with your past through the cross, and it can be redeemed, and you can therefore be an instrument of healing in the lives of other people. Now, not only did Moses' family shape his character, but so did the failures that he experienced. In the next section of Exodus 2, we have recorded for us one of the biggest failures that Moses experienced early in his life. In fact, his first failure. In verses 11 to 15, we read of how Moses failed at his first attempt to be God's deliverer. Now, Stephen tells us in Acts 7 that Moses was 40 years of age. So he gives us his, his age. He was 40 years of age when it came into his heart to visit the children of Israel. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. And you'll notice in verse 12 that it says, he looked this way and he looked that. In other words, he went to great lengths to make sure that no one was watching. And then he struck down the Egyptian and he killed him and buried him in the stand. Then the next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting against one another. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill us? as you killed the Egyptian. And Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing has become known. And sure enough, when Pharaoh heard about it, he sought to kill Moses. And so Moses had to go and flee and live in Midian. Now, as I said, this was Moses' first attempt at being the deliverer. And he was a complete failure. Not even the person who he was trying to deliver wanted him to be his deliverer, some deliverer. But Moses' failure taught him some vital lessons that he would need for his future. First, it humbled him. You see, when Moses went out that day, I believe that he was full of confidence in his own strength and ability. He probably thought, I am a prince of Egypt. I will be a mighty savior of my people. I say this because once again, Stephen tells us in Acts 7 and verse 25 that he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. See, Moses thought, these people, they're going to be so impressed by my credentials. 
They're going to welcome me with open arms to be their deliverer. But as we've seen, that was not the case. You see, Moses had to learn a very important lesson. And it's this, that salvation would not come by his hand, but by the hand of God. You see, while it's true that Moses had spent the past 40 years training to be a leader in the house of Pharaoh and was mighty, as Stephen says, in words and deeds, none of that should have been the source of his confidence and strength. His confidence and strength needed to come from the Lord. And you only learn about your own insufficiency and God's complete sufficiency through failure. After you have failed and been humbled, you often see where and in whom you have placed your confidence. You know, so many times in my ministry over the years, I placed my confidence in my theological education or in my natural gifting or my ability to preach. You know, I thought, oh man, things aren't going so good at church, but at least I can preach a good sermon. And if I just preach a good sermon, then the church will grow. But how stupid's that? What am I trusting in? I'm trust- trusting in human ability, human strength. You see, Moses needed to learn, learn that although God would use his gifts and his education, get this, the most important thing that you need for effective service is the presence of God with you. And Moses got it. Later on in the book of Exodus, when the people, because of their disobedience, when the Lord, because of the people's disobedience, threatened to just send an angel to go with him, Moses pleaded and said, Lord... Notice these words, if your presence does not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? See, the thing that makes a difference in ministry is not your education and your natural gifting, but it's when the presence of God goes with you, when the hand of God is upon you. Second, Moses' failure meant that he spent 40 years as a shepherd in the very wilderness, get this, where he would spend the last 40 years of his life shepherding the people of Israel. As we see in verses 16 to 22, he went to live in the land of Midian, and because he protected the daughters of the high priest of Midian, Jethro, he was extended a hand of fellowship, and he ended up marrying Jethro's daughter, Zipporah, and having a son named Gershon. Once again, you don't know how God is going to use your failures in the future. Now, you've probably all here heard of the Watergate scandal. Have you heard of the Watergate scandal? Put up your hand if you've heard of the Watergate scandal in 1970 with President Nixon. But you may have never heard of Chuck Colson. Colson was an American attorney and a political advisor to President Nixon from 1969 to 1970. And he was known as President Nixon's hatchet man. And uh, Colson gave notoriety at the height of the Watergate scandal for being named as one of the Watergate Seven and pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice for attempting to defame Pentagon Papers. In 1974, he served seven months in a federal prison in Alabama. What a fall from grace, from high-powered lawyer, presidential advisor, to prisoner. But through this experience, Colson became a Christian. And his midlife conversion sparked a radical change of life that led to the founding of his nonprofit Prison Fellowship and three, la- days, uh, three years later, uh, Prison Fellowship International. 
a ministry that's still going today that seeks to present the gospel to prisoners and seeks to provide education and advocacy for them. You know, there is no way that Colson would have started that ministry had he not been found out, had he not gone to prison, there's no way he would have been converted, and then there's no way he would have known what it was like for a prisoner and started that ministry, Prison Fellowship. But finally, Moses' failure got him to a place, finally. His failure got him to a place where he would encounter the voice of God. You know, Moses was the answer to the prayers of God's people. Down in verses 23 to 25, we read this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Have you ever got to that place in your life where you were just crying out for deliverance? Have you got to that place where it seems like there is nothing else you can do and no one else you can turn to? Well, this is what it was like for the people of Israel. They were crying out to God for deliverance. But it seemed like the heavens were silent. Get this, it had been 40 years already since the king had issued that decree to kill all the babies. 40 years of baby killing. It would be another 40 years before God would call Moses at the age of 80 by the burning bush. But you see, while the heavens seemed silent, God had a plan. God had a plan. One of the things that really, really speaks to me from these verses is that God heard their cries and he remembered, he didn't remember their faithfulness, he remembered his covenant to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. See, there might be some people here this morning and you are in a terrible situation. God will work in your life, not on the basis of what you do, but on the basis of his faithfulness to his promises. Isn't that a great comfort? And you see, God had to get Moses into a place where he could hear his voice. As we're going to learn in the next chapter, it's going to be at while Moses is out near the mountain of God that he sees this unusual sight, this bush that is not consumed, that's burning, and God speaks to him through the bush. You know, often it is in the desert where God speaks to us, away from Egypt, away from the busyness. Have you ever been through a desert experience? Have you ever been through difficult times where you feel like you're an absolute failure? I don't know what it's like for you, but for me, in those moments, it seems like God draws close. God draws near, and he says things to me that I, wa- that I, that I wasn't ready to hear. So maybe you are here this morning and you have failed big time. Don't let that failure be final. Let it humble you and listen to what God might be wanting to teach you through that failure. You know, as you read Exodus chapter 2, you can't help but see the Lord Jesus all the way through. You know, when Jesus was a baby, King Herod, like Pharaoh, issued an edict that all the sons of Israel be killed. But because Jesus' parents were people of faith, and because they were warned in a dream, they fled to where? To Egypt, of all places, to save his life from destruction. And just as Moses was drawn out of the water, because that's what Moses' name means, he who was drawn out of the water, Jesus, before he began his ministry, 
He, was, he went down into the water of baptism and came up out of the water. And God the Father said to him at that point, Here is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And just as Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness before he was sent out by God to be his deliverer, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And Luke says in Luke 4 and verse 14 that after that wilderness experience, he came back in the power of the Spirit. And for all of those people who are here today who have not had the best family upbringing, even though Jesus' human parents, Joseph, his stepfather, and Mary, his mother, were godly people. In Jesus' own life, we read how on this one occasion, his mother and his brothers came to him and they were going to put him away quietly because they thought he was out of his mind. So Jesus knows what it's like to have struggles with your earthly family. But ultimately, get this, Jesus came as the fulfillment, God's fulfillment, to the cry of humanity, to the cry and groan of creation for redemption. Jesus is God's ultimate deliverer. And so we can bring our wounds and our pain and our sin to the cross, and we can be delivered. So how do you become a person whom God can use? You need to be a person of character. And the way you become a person of character is by dealing with the things from the past, the good and the bad, and also by learning from your failures. So I wonder if there are people here this morning who need to bring their brokenness and pain to the cross and receive healing. I wonder if there's people here today who need to bring their failures to the cross and God will redeem your failures. He will forgive you of your failures and he will teach you through those failures. Now I want to finish today by giving you two very practical applications. You'll never grow in character in the future unless you deal with the issues from the past. So application number one, why don't you ask someone really close to you that you trust whether they see an issue in your life that is the result of some unfinished business from the past? An issue that you've kept buried deep in your character that needs sort, sorting out. Now the reason I say to ask someone really close to you whom you trust is because we're so often blind. We don't see the issues in our own hearts. So ask someone really close to you. Is there an issue that I've been refusing to deal with that I need to deal with in my life? Second, I want you to ask yourself, what has been the greatest failure in my life and what did I learn from that failure? What has been the greatest thing that I failed in my life and what did I learn from that failure? Write it out in your diary or your soap booklet or on your phone and ask God, is there anything more, God, that you want to teach me from that failure? You know, Socrates once said that the unreflected life is not worth living. And often we go through life and we make the same mistakes over and over again, and we never really reflect on how we can do better. Now, some of you might be older here today, and you can be, when you get older, and I'm even feeling it right now in my mid-40s, you have this temptation to feel like I have nothing more to learn. Well, that's not true. God is not done with you yet. It doesn't matter how old you are. God's plan for your life is to refine and shape your character till the day you die, right? How old was Moses when God called him to be the great deliverer? 80. So everyone over 80 can go home. The rest of you can stay. 
God is not done yet. You know, I loved, um, one of the things I loved about the late Professor Howard Hendricks, a professor at Dallas Seminary, a professor who I had the privilege of learning from, is he was pursuing growth and learning new things even into his old age. He and his wife Jeannie would go away for a couple of days by themselves and they would ask themselves these type of questions. What does God want us to do in the next season of our life? What have, been, what have we been learning from the Word in this past season of our life? Who does God want us to invest in in the next season of our life? And they kept on doing this well into their 70s and 80s. Professor Hendricks would have a reading list of books that he was trying to read each and every year to continue to grow, to continue to think. One of my good friends is Roland Foreman who does BSL, he's in his mid-70s, or he's getting to his late 70s now. And he is a guy who hasn't given up. In fact, one time, I share this, Roland actually told me off. We were, we were, it was in our first trip. We were traveling together, and everywhere we went, I thought I was just being polite. I was like letting him go first, and I was carrying his luggage for him. And eventually, he, he drew me aside. He said, Timon, stop doing that for me. He said, if you, if you do that for me, you will make me, you're, you're turning me into an old man. He was like, I don't want to be treated like an old man, because then I'll become an old man. He said, I want to be like a Caleb. I want to be like a Caleb, so I can carry my own bag, thank you very much. I was like, fine, that's good, I can carry your own bag. <laughs> but Roland is the type of guy who, late into his 70s, he is still growing. He's still going after God. He's still taking mountains that God wants him to take. In fact, I think that's part of staying young, people. If you, if you don't do that, you'll get old. Pursue growth right to the finishing line, right to the last day that you draw breath. Pursue growth, pursue character, pursue everything that God has for you. Right to your last day. You see, because we want to become people whom God can use. And these messages aren't just for the young people who have a lot of life ahead of them. They're actually for all of us. And some of us don't have as much as others, but it's for all of us so that we will continue to become people of character, people whom God can use, who his hand can be upon. Well, let me pray for us. Why don't you stand together and why don't we pray? I realize that today's message might have stirred up some things in your heart and, and uh, I don't want to embarrass you or anything like that. And so, you know, if you want to talk to someone about some things from the past, you can just call us privately and we will talk, we'll talk to you privately, you know, during the week about these things because you know, I'm just very conscious there might be a lot of brokenness or some brokenness in in the lives of people in this room. But let me just pray for us. Father, I just come before you today. We are so thankful for the way that you sovereignly shape our lives. The families that we were placed in were not a mistake. But you have allotted our, our places. You've allotted where we are so that we will seek you and so that we will find you. Lord, I pray that we would all be people who pursue growth in character right up until our dying breath because that would be that would how we could honor you, Father.
honor the Son of God, the Lord.